Thanks for listening, subscribing, and reviewing DIY for Business. Look, it's Russ and Greg with you. Greg, how's it going? It's going fantastic. As you know, I'm out of town. I'm in Las Vegas and kind of my home away from home. I love it here. I feel like we should call this our live from Vegas episode, you know, because that's like the cool place to be. You're there. Like, let's let's ramp it up a little bit on the uh, on the marketing for this one. <laughs> yeah. Living in Las Vegas. That's maybe that's the title of the show here. <laughs> when are you going to be living in Las Vegas? That's the big question, because it feels like you're always there now. I am here a lot. Um, I don't know. I don't know. It, it's you know we're thinking about it or maybe spending part of the year here we do enjoy it we have family yeah. down here a lot of my wife's family her sister and her brother both live here uh my sister-in-law's nieces both have places here so we got a lot of family we've been you know hanging out with them while we're here plus my daughter is at yeah. unlv and uh, she dances for the uh, football team as well as the Lady Rebels basketball team. Shout out to the Lady Rebels. They just won the Mountain West uh, Conference. So nice. congratulations to them. And, uh, yeah, they are, I think, I, last time I looked, they're top 25 in the country. So Wow, very cool. So we watched my daughter dance uh, earlier this week, and she was fantastic. I love watching her perform. And we've just been eating a lot, Russ. You know, surprise to really? you, right? I, I'm, yeah. I'm shocked. Have you been to uh, Flaming Fajitas yet? We have not <laughs> gone to Flaming Fajitas, but we did go to a place that you know, uh, Pizza Rock. Oh, okay. Which, nice. Yeah. Which has fantastic pizza. I don't, I don't. For people that come to Las Vegas, it's not on the Strip. It's off the Strip. Uh, but Pizza Rock has some of the fantastic, most fantastic pizzas out there. I believe the owner of this won the pizza making contest in Italy, what, 14, 15 years in a row where they had to ban him because nobody, everybody was getting mad that they couldn't <laughs> win the competition. He was, he was winning every year. So nice. Nice. Very yeah. cool. Yeah. That's, that's the, uh, I'm, I'm doing a trip to Italy this year and like I, I've done zero research on like, you know, Roman ruins and all of that. stuff. it's all about the food. Like I, I can tell you every meal that I'm going to have <laughs> over like the 10 or the fresh or 15 days or whatever. I'm going to be, it's going to be awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, and it's all these like, so very fortunate. I, I've been working with like, you know, developers uh, offshore. Like we, we have developers, the company that I work with beeswax that like we have developers around the world. And um, I have a couple developers in Italy that we just brought on. And I'm like, well, sweet. Now I get the inside track of like where to actually go instead of the tourist places. I, I can actually hit some nice places. So I, I've been getting some advice and it's it's very cool. <laughs> Looking forward are, to it. Are you going to meet with any of them to kind of as a little tour guide? They're going to show you around? Uh, we're working on that. Yeah, we might we might do a little dinner and, and you know, kind of get some. But I mean, the thing is dinner for them. Like, you know, I'll be, I'll be talking to them and it's like, you know, what time is it over there? And, and oh, it's, it's 10 PM. I, I'm, I'm about to go eat. <laughs> like, yeah. I eat dinner so late. It's like, so I guess we'll meet earlier and then, you know, ease up to dinner as my, my wife and, and I are yawning <laughs> and thinking about <laughs> going to sleep, but we'll adjust. We'll adjust. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, speaking yeah. of Pizza Rock, so I, I was at Pizza Rock and then, you know, I was with the family and I was talking to my niece and um, I was asking her how work is going for her. And she goes, yeah, I'm training somebody new. We, we just lost uh, somebody. And I go, oh, really? What was the reason why they left? And she was telling me that it was a woman that just got out of the Air Force. Mm. And 
<clears throat> the reason why she decided to leave was kind of it was a it was a tough adjustment for her leaving kind of the structure that she had in the military and the Air Force and kind of coming out into private business. And, you know, this is a service company that uh, my niece works for, and they just didn't have nearly the systems in place that, you know, the, uh, the other employee was used to mm. and didn't have the structure in place that uh, she was used to in the Air Force. And it just was a tough adjustment. She just had gotten out. I think this was her first job out of the Air Force. And it just didn't work for her. And, it, you know, it's totally understandable. But I'm assuming that there's an adjustment, you know, oh, yeah. people coming out of the military and coming into private sector. There is an adjustment in just styles of leadership and management. And, um, you know, I want to explore that a little bit more today. Well, coincidentally, we've got a guest here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, uh, Marty Strong is joining us. Marty, how's it going? Hey, guys, going well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, have you have you ever been to Pizza Rock? That's why that's why we brought you on the show here. No, I've been to Vegas about thirteen times, but I haven't been to Pizza Rock. Okay, well, oh, you're gonna we, have to check we, that place out. Uh, we're gonna turn yeah. them into a sponsor one way or the other, so we get free pizza. <laughs> Just, <laughs> sounds like it could have a great jingle. I mean, you might be able to make some money there if you offer one up. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah, we're we're gonna make that happen. So uh, you're your CEO, your your chief strategy officer, your 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 uh, retired. A SEAL officer as well. So tell us a little about yourself. You just did. You just stole all my. You stole all oh, my man. thunder right there. That's it. I did I'm it like, all right there. I stole. I stole it. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. I, so I joined the Navy in uh, when I was 17 years old. I uh, went through SEAL training, which is about six months in the selection uh, process, and became an enlisted SEAL, and was a SEAL on the East Coast. And primarily, the SEALs are bifurcated. They're either in San Diego. California or there in Virginia Beach, Virginia, and spent most of my 20 years on the East Coast. I did do two instructor tours, one as a senior enlisted in charge of the first phase, which is where the famous Hell Week and all the real attrition happens in, in that six-month course. And then I came back after I became an officer at, at the 10-year mark and was an officer in charge of, of training and strategy and tactics and some other things. And then I went from there and and went into um, managing money, first with Lake Mason out of Baltimore, and then United Bank of Switzerland, was a portfolio manager with them, did the financial services thing for eight years, and then I went into leading businesses, which I'm still doing today. Yeah, so I'm curious, because you hear these stories about the Navy SEALs and the training, and it just sounds like it's not for most human beings. And I'm just curious, what was it like for you to go through that training and what did you take out of that training that you brought into the private sector? Well, to answer your first your first question, there are a lot of things, a lot of vocations that aren't for everybody. Being an air traffic controller is not for mm -hmm. everybody. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, being being a, a fighter pilot is not for everybody. Being an EMT is not for everybody, or a fighter fighter. The you know the thing that is different about SEAL training is that they call it training, but really it is selection and it's a psychological assessment. They set up a essentially a crucible of decision making and the decision making is you against the voice in your head so you, you have to volunteer in there might be as many as 500 candidates being screened various ways uh, aptitude uh, iq obviously physical uh, abilities you know they have to have perfect eyesight they have to pass a, a security clearance check those 500 
are screened down to about 120 to 150 candidates per class, you know, about three or four classes a year traditionally. And out of that, only 25% graduate. And most of that attrition happens in the first five weeks of that six month course. So what you're doing is you're basically bringing all these volunteers in, you've already pre-screened them once, you bring them into the course, you put them through about four or five weeks of constant physical exertion. And it's not so much shocking, it's more just a think of like a, uh, I want you to walk, but I want you to walk for 500 miles with a 80 pound pack on your back. We're not going to do anything. Other and there's that. sleep deprivation going on too, right? Well, there's two ways of doing that. Aside from Hell Week, which is kind of famous for the sleep deprivation, you get sleep deprivation all the way up to Hell Week because the training day ends and then you've got chores to do. You've got gear to, uh, to repair and to polish. You've got rooms to get ready and uniforms to get ready for the next day's inspections. And so you're lucky between going to bed at around 11, 1130 at night and getting up around four o'clock in the morning, uh, you're lucky to have any sleep during a normal day. So the only time you get to sleep is basically Saturdays and Sundays and hell week is pretty much, you don't get to sleep for five days. So, but that's all part of the breaking, breaking down of your, of your own personal psychology, revealing what it is that you are inside. It's not something that's like the Marine Corps. We don't take people in, strip them down and then rebuild them as Marines, you know, and they are like they're representative of the core, the history of the core and all that. We just basically take, you know, a big chunk of clay and sandblast it and, and wait and see what happens, what shape comes out. Hmm. And so that's, that's the difference there. There's so much about that. Like, and it's like, you know, I mean, I'm doing, I'm doing my other learning more podcast. I'm I'm doing this podcast. So much of it comes down to just like self-awareness like learning yourself and figuring out like, can I do this? Can I like, I guess like taking an inventory of like what you, what you feel like you can and can't do. But then there's also those kind of voices inside your head of like, Oh, I can't do this. Like the, you know, the imposter syndrome type, you know, stuff. Um, I, I'm sure that hits you when, you know, like when you're signing up and you're thinking about the hell week and you're thinking about all these things that are going to happen. And, and, and it also though happens in the decision of like running your own business, right? Like to, to manage anyone or to lead anyone, you sort of get that, can I do this? <laughs> Am I okay with doing this? So you really like, that's, I guess, one of the other parts of that whole thing, right? Is just like overcoming that. Uh, I wonder if you could speak to that a little bit. Yeah. And, and it goes to the, the second question that Greg had. So what does it do for you? You know, if it does anything for you in the commercial world, in the business world, well, first off, you don't recognize it's doing anything for you when you're going through mm-hmm. it. You're being pounded. And you don't realize what, what they're doing. You don't know why they're doing it. When I went back as an instructor and I ran that first phase, I saw the, the I guess, the elegance of what they were doing. And what they were doing and what they revealed was essentially psychological resilience. Now, think of a small business or a startup business or a business that's doing fine, but they want to scale up. And all of a sudden, they, they take a stable situation and turn it into chaos on purpose. Those are the same kinds of, of psychological bombardment, you know, the, the same kind of fight or flight cycles every day that, that, you, that we're putting these guys through in, in SEAL training mm. to get them to make a decision, to quit, to go away. This isn't for me. It's the same thing in small business. That's one of the main reasons small businesses don't succeed. It's not because they can't get access to information. It's because that psychology is a very human thing. It's a very personal thing. So unless they have somebody that can sit down that's already been through it or is going through it, that can say, look, this is a part of the deal. You know what this is? 
This is called a learning curve for a reason. Embrace the learning part of it. Don't keep looking at the curve's going to be 10 years from now. I'll finally, be, I'll finally know what I'm doing. Embrace the learning part. Fail, learn, fail, learn, get stronger, get smarter. And guess what? You look up and you're two years into owning a business. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I think it, it was funny for me. Like I, I uh, and I've told this story before of where, you know, like I work at my day job and I start this, you know, kind of side gig business that eventually became a business that I ran for like 13 years. But I set a goal of myself by, you know, by um, uh, May, this was January by May. If like, if I don't, if I'm not comfortable and if I don't have enough money, if I don't, you know, like if everything's not going as smooth as I want it to be, then I'm going to quit. <laughs> you know, So I put this line in the sand and then I just remember like in July thinking, oh shoot, <laughs> I guess I'm okay. I guess I can continue this. Like it was, it was, I don't know. It just, it was, it was like this crazy moment of like, I, I put the line in the sand and then I didn't even like think about it after it just, it was good. It was, everything was running, running fine. Yeah. Hey, Marty, one of the uh, long list of things that you do is you're an author as well as, uh, you know, being a coach and a strategist and a CEO. You have two books, one called Be Nimble and the second called Be Visionary. And I'm just curious about the two books. Tell us a little bit about both of them and kind of the different angles you took about leadership and business in both of these books. So I've, I've published nine novels and about the second or third novel in, I really felt like I was ready to, to try my hand at codifying and writing down what I thought about leadership. Because at that point I was doing a lot of mostly pro bono assistance and advisory work with a lot of my friends that were CEOs or C-level, um, at least C-level executives. And I thought, well, okay, I'll just write down what, what, what's my shtick? What do I tend to focus on? What do they seem to see? Uh, where's the value that they see in talking to me? And what kind of problems do they bring to me? Because I'm not a finance guy, right? And so I started writing all these ideas down. And that became the first book, Be Nimble. And it, again, to your, your question in the earlier segment, Greg, the it's how the, the creative Navy SEAL mindset wins on the battlefield and in business. So it's a way of taking everything I learned in the military and the SEAL teams and special operations and conveying it along with everything I've learned since as a leader in commercial businesses about leading people, about scaling companies, about training, mentoring, coaching talent. And that book was pretty much all about that. It was about crisis management, crisis leadership, and, you know, so at some point in there, I got some feedback from some of the beta writers, excuse me, beta readers that were reading Be Nimble chapter at a time. They were all uh, business leaders. And they said, hey, with one chapter, you talked about strategy and how efficiency and optimization is kind of like the enemy of strategy. You're right. I mean, nobody teaches that. Nobody teaches how to take a concept, to dream, turn a dream or a vision into a concept, turn the concept into a working strategy and back plan from there with an operational plan to execute and get to that goal audacious or otherwise. So I wrote the second book. I wrote Be Visionary, Strategic Leadership in the Age of Optimization, the kind of answer, kind of scratch that itch, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, let, I want to, I want to, so I, I went through the first book, right? And, and um, I, there were a couple of things that really stood out with me and, and Something that, you know, like the whole world has dealt with is, you know, we sort of had this known event of, of COVID and all the 
crazy stuff that happened uh, to, to business owners during that time of we all know <laughs> uh, how crazy it was. Um, but yet, you know, even though we had that known event, there were a lot of like there's 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 a, a ton of other things that, that happened during that after that. These sort of, uh, uh, you know, like the, the the black swan type of events, the unexpected stuff. And and you got a little into that in the book. I, we're, this is something that we're all going to have to deal with, something that we can't plan for in business. So how do we prepare ourselves for those unexpected events? Well, again, I've learned this, you know, the military doesn't matter if you're in special operations or not. Military leaders and those those that are following those military leaders learn how to do contingency planning. Basically, that's just preparedness, like, you know, standard old Boy, Boy Scout rule. So mm-hmm. you as a businessman, what you can do is you can sit down and either by yourself, you can bring in people you, you, you think might have some good input. Sometimes you can bring in somebody who has nothing to do with your industry, or whatever, because they come up with some crazy ideas. Which actually, actually, that's a good thing in black swan preparedness. You want the crazy idea. You don't want everybody to come in in a linear thing and say, it's just going to be a little bit worse than it was in that thing we had two years ago. It's not, it's going to be something coming in from left field or right field. So you storyboard it out. You, you just sit there and you brainstorm all these different things that could happen. And then you take each one, you storyboard out. Well, what, what would be the consequences to us? And you start real big, you know, the economy, the nation, globally, you start working your way down into your industry, your market, your market niche, and then your, your company specifically. By the time you get done with doing that and storyboarding out how these sequences are going to happen, like let's say the 1929 stock crash didn't affect local businesses the day it crashed. It, it affected local businesses about a year later and halfway there, it affected all the banks in the United States. And so it was a cascading kind of rolling effect. And that's the way most of these events happen, just like the pandemic. So nobody would have expected, and I, I wouldn't have storyboarded out. If I said, I'm going to prepare for an, a, an epidemic or a pandemic, I would never have said the United States government's going to shut everything down because we had mm-hmm. never done that. We'd been through pandemics and epidemics and world wars that had never happened before. So most of those crazy things that happened in 2020 were government generated crazy. There were wild card events that nobody was prepared for. Nobody thought they were going to do that. And I don't know if there was a good plan to completely deal with it other than you had to realize it wasn't going to be the same ever again and mm-hmm. start reinventing and re, re, you know preparing yourself for a new future maybe new products, new services, maybe a new structure, new business model, but you had to get at it pretty quickly. You had to accept it and move on. Part of me wonders, you know, because of that, because it was so, like you say, wild card, because it was so black swan, because it was so different. Is that going like, I I almost feel like with, with like this maybe pending recession thing that, that maybe some, you know, business owners might now tend to overreact, you know, because now that's like, they've, they've been, you know, afraid so long based because of that. And now it's like, oh, well, this next thing is going to, you know, cause these huge situations. And, and, and it's almost like the overreaction could be bad as well, or it could be like almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, oh, there's, you know, I'm, I'm going to have problems, so I'm going to prepare for it and I'm going to, you know, reduce staff. I'm going to do this, whatever it is. Uh, and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, well now I've actually made this thing actually happen. You know, right. that's, you, that's my fear. But there's two, there's two ways to deal with it, right? You can deal with it as it's, everything's a threat and you're going to mitigate against the threat and you're going to shrink and you're going to go in the corner and you're going to wait. 
or everything's an opportunity. Right. The pandemic was a huge opportunity for, you know, all kinds of cloud enabled capabilities, especially like in the accounting finance world, but also like Salesforce and Zoom that they were there. And it was just this weird point in time where the pandemic happened right when that technology that could use the cloud enabled all these people to work from home. And I can tell you, four years later, I could not have had all my accountants go home and start pushing massive payrolls through their their home wife their home Wi-Fi system. You know, they right. didn't have they didn't right. have a T one line. If you didn't have something <laughs> a pipe big enough, you'd been done, right? Yeah. yeah. But right. then when this happened, it was like, wow, this technology happened to be hanging out there. And it was an, mm-hmm. and it was embraced by some, but not by the the masses, not by all companies and corporations. But look how quickly we did it because it worked. And we were only forced, we were forced to do it by this other circumstance. Mm-hmm. So there's an opportunity usually every time you see a threat, you just have to kind of, like I said, you storyboard it out and then you train all your, your leaders and, and maybe if you're a small business, everybody in the company, so that they psychologically start to inoculate themselves against it happening because it will happen. It might be a totally different one, but they know when that happens, you as the leader, the owner, you're going to pull everybody in a room. All right, everybody, let's take a deep breath. We've thought through this kind of stuff before. Let's start talking about what we know, what we don't know. Let's start rolling our sleeves up and making something happen. They know that's how the reaction is going to be. It takes a right. lot of the unknown emotion out of it for an organization. Yeah, and, that, and that's challenging to kind of take the emotion out of it. Uh, but, mm-hmm. you know, those decisions need to be made. And, you know, what what you described is exactly what happened with my business, right? The pandemic hit, um, you know, the world started shifting into a more distributed workforce, and that opened up an opportunity for us to take a regional business that that I have to make it a national business because we could hire people all over the country and everybody can work from home. And, um, you know, business changed over the past, you know, two, three years now. And it we looked at it as an opportunity, like you said. And what I like about your two books, and there's kind of a common thread between both of them, there's multiple threads, but one of the common threads that I really uh, gravitated towards is you know, as a leader, you need to be flexible. You use the word nimble in, in the first book and, you know, there's a lot of flexibility in, in the Be Visionary book. And I think as an effective leader, you can't just be stuck in your ways. You have to be able to move, you know, as as things are coming your way, you have to be able to dodge, move and look at it as an opportunity and figure out how am I going to capitalize on this opportunity? And I think you really did a fantastic job in both of these books to kind of educate leaders on how to prepare yourself for that. Thank you. Well, you know, one of the problems with experience is that it gives you a feeling that you're in control. You <laughs> have foot, you have football plays, you have formulas, you have a certain kind of person you hire, you have a certain kind of leadership approach you, you admire and adhere to. And what happens is you sort of, you start to start to kind of get harder the arteries and harder, hardening, hardening of the brain <laughs> To where you have a certain channel like like a uh, an ant farm every solution every question every answer is being calculated and analyzed the same way every day every time so that means the more experienced you are the more you're at risk and more of a, a threat that you're not going to be flexible adaptable nimble agile because you're doubling down on success mm-hmm. and that's where that's really that's the success trap right you believe in yourself which is okay you can be confident but you really have to have intellectual humility every day. You have to say to yourself, you know, I had a terrible week, a terrible month. I lost my biggest client. 
And you can't say, and I, I suck and I don't know how to make any decisions. And that's how you embrace the next challenge. And you can't say, I kicked butt, I got a huge bonus, or I closed a massive, a massive account. I'm a superhero, man. I'm, I'm it. <laughs> and then take that kind of baggage, positive baggage, into the next day either, because that's going to blind you to things. So yeah. you got to sit down, clear your mind, become very uh, humble intellectually, then become very humble, excuse me, very curious intellectually, absorb information from 360 degrees, every possible source, whether it's a challenge or a problem in front of you or not but certainly when there is. And then the last thing, once you've embraced all that kind of non-groupthink information and data, that's when you truly can become intellectually uh, creative. You're not really creative unless you've done those first few steps because what you're really doing, you think you're creative, but you're basically just, you know, wrapping everything in the same wrapping paper that you, you used last year. Right. Yeah. When you, when, when your only tool is a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? Like that old yeah. thing. <laughs> right. You know, what, the other, the other thing out of that is um, sometimes, an idea out of a brainstorming is, is, is it comes out there and it seems like this is the greatest idea. Why didn't we think of this? And it sort of becomes this little, you know, shiny object that is now taking all of the attention, but it might not be the best idea, but it becomes your focus, right? How do we evaluate those things so that we don't get stuck in our own head of like, oh, this is the way to go. This is the way to go. We stop listening to others. We just push forward on this. Maybe what's going to be a bad idea. Yeah, it's very difficult. I, my actually, I'm working on my third book right now, which is all about divergent thinking and neurodivergence uh, and basically how creativity happens. And the, the problem with what you just said is that if somebody has not been taught how to do a business case analysis of the shiny object they're looking at, they just run into the room and start screaming about the shiny object. And they're basically... They're just like a bullseye. Everybody around them who doesn't understand is not enamored of the shiny object, you know, right. pulls up, pulls out their, their quiver, loads of, loads of arrow in the bow and starts shooting facts, figures, and reality at them until they, they crawl out, <laughs> never to come back with a shiny object idea ever again. And I talk about actually part of Be Visionary, uh, the middle part, the first part's teaching you kind of how to think like a visionary and then how to go through the process of, of putting together a vision. I explained that you have to teach your people that it's okay to come up with ideas and you can't shoot them down the second they walk into a room. But at the same time, you have to teach these same people that you're, sh you're saying, go ahead, think all these great thoughts, you know, come, come to me with these ideas, but kind of attach those ideas. Tell me what, what kind of business case analysis you've done. I mean, it's as simple as that, that way, they are armed when they walk in that room. They've got a shield. They've got armor. They come in, they yell, shiny object idea. And everybody starts to grab those, those bows. And they start, like, it doesn't matter because you're, you're, you're ready. You're, you're prepared. You know exactly what they're going to say. They're going to talk about, you know, sunk capital and ROI. And throw all this stuff out at you. And which market are we going into? And blah, blah, blah. This isn't what we do. This isn't core. You know, this isn't new. Somebody else does it better. Blah, blah. And they're, you know, arrows are bouncing off the armor, bouncing off the shields because you're ready. You're ready for right. all that. Right. It still may not be an idea that's worth going forward with, but you don't, if you train somebody in both capabilities or enough, basically enable the first one, which is the excitement, the energy of thinking big thoughts and, and looking for ideas. And then you armor them with the ability to defend those ideas in a business way. Then what you've done is you've given somebody a binary approach and at some point, and I've seen this hundreds of times. At some point, they'll walk into a room, 
they'll throw the shiny object out uh, and everyone starts shooting stuff and all of a sudden there's silence. Hey, this, this could work. Hey, this isn't, <laughs> and you know what? It may be one out of 50 ideas, but if they're wrapped in that business sense, if they're wrapped in those, those kinds of business parameters, at least you're defending the idea long enough for everybody to kind of get past their, get past their resistance and, uh, and think about it. And that's, about the only way you can do it. I mean, I've tried to enable people just to be enthusiastic and 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 thoughtful and creative and all that. But if they go running to one of my subordinate leaders, I find out later that my subordinate leader basically just shot them to pieces, you know, with facts and figures and hard questions. And and that, whatever happened to that idea from six months ago? You know, and then I get this sad story, and they're never going to do it again. So yeah, that's how I that's yeah. how I that's how I would so- do it. So I got a follow-up. Actually, I got follow-up two questions for you. You know, as a leader, how do you deal with when, you know, one of your team members comes with an idea and it's just not something you want to go with, but you want to keep their enthusiasm for contributing more ideas in the future? And then the second question is, because you're working directly with a lot of CEOs, what happens when or how do you deal with when the CEO comes up with the the shiny new idea and all of the subordinates say, you know what, that's a bad idea, you know, and these are reasons why it's a bad idea. How does the CEO deal with that? Do they forge forward with, you know, their idea because it's their idea and they believe it and they feel they have the facts to move forward with it? Or do they really open up and realize, okay, I'm not getting buy-in from my company. Maybe I should shift there. How, how do you work with, uh, you know, those two scenarios? So the first one, I do exactly what I told you should be done as part of mentoring and coaching for everybody. And that is if there isn't something like that in place, or it's, it's something that their particular direct leader did not uh, help them with. I just take on the the role of trainer. They come in with the idea. I look at it and I go, okay, this is not going to fly, but I start asking kind of open-ended questions. I start walking them in very, you know, without killing their enthusiasm. I take the time in the moment because that's the moment. And I have them, and I even sometimes I'll get up on a whiteboard and I'll say, so answer this. Well, what do you think of this? Well, how much time? And I'll be drawing this stuff out. And they're getting excited because they think I'm I'm going to buy into this whole thing. But as I'm getting the answers, they start to they start to realize. Now I haven't I haven't shot one hole in anything. <laughs> they're doing it because they also have a business sense if they're professionals and they start to see the holes in their own idea. And then when it starts to get to that point, I go, I'll tell you what. I'm not, I'm not sure if this idea will fly or not, but let's answer all these questions and come back in a couple of weeks and let's see what you come up with. It's an exercise. It, it's training them. It's, it's making sure that they don't walk out of the room saying to hell with this. If it's a CEO, you know, first off, I, I, I don't think you can be a good CEO unless you can have a sense of humility. If you think you're the bomb diggity and, and you're all about the power and you're going to override all that input, then you're probably not a very good CEO. And, and, you might think you are, and you might be perceived as a, a, an authority figure, but you're probably not respected. You're not a thought leader. You can't be a thought leader if your thoughts are all locked in 1974, 98, or 2014. <laughs> you may think you are because you're repeating the mantra of whatever you learned in college or your first job or whenever you finally, whenever you finally figured out how to organize something. And it's every, the world's moved way beyond that, and nobody wants to tell you that. But the only way you're going to know that is you have to take a deep breath and embrace humility, which also means if you've trained your organization, you've trained your subordinate leaders, you want to 
you want to encourage them to attack your plan. When I write books, I mean, if anybody's done any writing before, you write, your heart's in there and everything. And I hand it out to five or six people. And I do the same thing with my novels. And I start writing the next chapter. And usually by the time I'm done two more chapters ahead, I start getting the feedback. And, you know, sometimes it's, wow, this, this, this sucked. (laughs) (laughs) Now I could say, well, the hell with you. I'm not going to listen to you, beta reader. I'm just going to leave it sucky because, you know, because I'm the author. The whole, the whole point of using beta readers is to create a mechanism of humility to allow somebody to critique your, your, your characters, your storyline, in the case of business books, your theories, your principles, and bench test them. And not just bench test the ideas, but how you convey the ideas. Did, did they get it? Or did I, did I miss a part? Did I, you know, if you're a CEO, you could, you, it's like karate, you know, there's, or, or yoga. There's so many steps involved in one move. So when you teach it, you teach it in like 15 steps. And then you look at a karate master and he goes like, bam, he does a kick, one step. So, you know, as a student, novice, there's 15 steps. As a master, there was one step. Well, sure, there was 15 steps. It's just you didn't see them. So you have to be careful of that as a leader, CEO, that you're not jumping over the 15 steps when you're interacting with other people. You have to explain them, walk them through it in an idea, et cetera, and not just walk in and say, there, there's the kick. It is what it is. Execute. <laughs> right. And you know, the thing is what, what's, what's always like when, when I'm giving out ideas, when I'm, you know, like I come up with a, a random idea, I feel like, you know, I don't know. I, I would love to actually see the percentage of ideas over the years of like, what's good, what's bad. But I mean, it's, it probably lands maybe 50, 50, if I'm lucky, <laughs> you know, where I've had 50% of my ideas is good. I'm, I'm sure it's much lower than that. Hey, Russ, I'm, I have oh, a spreadsheet oh, on it. So oh, you do? Okay. I, I can share with you. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's why uh, I no longer work with you. <laughs> You're like, get this guy out of here. <laughs> no, but you know, it's like, you're going to have a bunch of bad ideas. And I love the meetings. Like when Greg and I would have meetings and I would come up with some random idea, right? Like we're, we're sitting, you know, probably over, you know, some sort of uh, something made out of bacon and we're, we're eating these, you know, these, this food. And I, I, I say something. And he's like, well, what if this or what if that? What it does is when somebody is not like agreeing with you, when somebody's bringing in this advice, I always try to look at it as, well, how do I make this idea better? Not like, oh, well, this idea sucks. Yeah. You know, and, and, and that's kind of a hard like next level thing that I got into eventually after going through and seeing, you know, all these different, you know, uh, company owners that Greg and I have worked with over the years, all these different people that we've worked with over the years and seeing like what really works is like uh, not just the idea, but uh, you know, ideation of the idea, like coming up and, and and next leveling it and going to the, you know, and like, Oh, okay, let me take this negative feedback. Cause I'd rather have the negative feedback from Greg over a sandwich than have it from the market coming back after we've spent a million dollars on something saying, well, that was a bad idea. <laughs> you know, yeah. like I mean, completely failed. It's that creative dialogue that really gets us to the best idea. Totally. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, so you, instead of defend emotionally defending your point, your position, what you should get into is coming up with the logic or working out the logic that supports your position. Because logic is is like a bunch of building blocks, a bunch of Legos and everything. And and one might not be very strong and it can be corrected without the whole idea going out the window. But if you do do the whole thing emotionally, that's where you get into the emotion push 
push and pull. Mm-hmm. It's funny you're saying that about how many ideas you might that might work. Uh, in 20 years in the SEAL teams, in my memory, I probably came up with 500 ideas. I was an idea guy. I was always coming up with ideas. I probably had five or six that actually took. <laughs> really, yeah, right? you know, and and I didn't yeah. think about it. But people that I bump into that knew me from from those years will say, "Hey, you know, I remember when you did this thing and this thing happened, and we all had to do this because that you know it was a really great idea." Everybody remembers the five or six because those are the only ones that saw the light of day. Right. So that so they all think I came up with only five or six ideas and I have like a batting average of a hundred percent. Right. <laughs> and, and I right. look back and all I can think about is all those great ideas that nobody would listen to. You just took more swings than everybody else. That's why it's small. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. I got I got another question on that. It's like when you're a SEAL and you're in combat and there is a situation, you come up, I mean, you have to, you know, think on the fly there and you come up with an idea that doesn't work and lives are at stake how do you deal with that emotionally and how do you deal with the you know the actual situation to come out alive it's exactly the way i describe dealing with a pandemic or some other black swan event hitting your your organization same exact thing so in the movies you know the seals green braves you know we have all this time we put together these incredible complicated plans we have all this intelligence down to the minute down to the last foot of the up to the target. <laughs> right. We've got these beautiful Hollywood mock-ups of the of the place we're going and what floor we're going on and all that. That's all BS. That never happens. But you still have <laughs> you still have to you still have to plan and you brief and everybody expects that's probably the plan. And all the assumptions are based on real intelligence. But you also train everybody in training through scenario-based training to change the assumptions. At the worst time you know, anytime randomly so that by the time you actually get into combat, you expect that thing Murphy's going to show up and things are going to change. So the way you deal with that is when it does change, you hunker down, you decide whether or not it's a go, no go, whether you need to abort the the mission and go back or whether it's something you can still achieve. The second thing is, all right, guys, what do you think? And then you basically, you have a, a brainstorming session right there on the mountaintop, in the bushes, sitting there in a sand dune, you know, on the edge of the water, looking at the beach, you, you, you figure out kind of collectively, and it doesn't even take longer. It's like pick up, pick up basketball. It takes like three or four minutes. And then you're all right. So Bob, you're going this way, you go down, go along, cut back behind the, the boat's wagon down there. And, 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 <laughs> and then you just go and you execute because all of us trust each other. All of us know we're highly trained. All of us have each other's backs and they all trust the leader and the leader trusts the men are going to do what the leader expects them to do. And if that all works, the leader then basically rolls with that, that kind of innovation, that, that improv and lets everybody do their job. The leader shouldn't have to do any leading unless it goes to hell in a handbasket. And then if it does, the leader's job is to either get more resources there to help them finish the job, get out of there alive, or, you know, look at the situation and come up with a better plan. So, you know, perfect mission. You don't need a you don't need an officer. If the mission falls apart, all the officer is doing is trying to help everybody get more resources, beans, bullets, air power, way out, whatever. So, it's very, very. It sounds casual, but it kind of is because you've been training to it all the way up to the moment that it happens. So, um, what is I, I I've I don't know I've I've started asking this question about like because I I, I um. I, I love giving our listeners something actionable for like, like right now. Right. So 
to to be you know more nimble let's say to be you know a a, a more nimble you know business owner or leader what can they do today to 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 make that difference whether you're going to be leading or whether you're going to be thinking about the future you have the same exact problem to overcome and we've already described it you have to get beyond your own hubris you got to get beyond your own information set your own data set so if if you'd imagine you know back in the 90s they had encyclopedias well think of your mind as an encyclopedia a set of encyclopedias from from the late 1990s if you went to a set of encyclopedias in 2023 to get the answer for anything you'd probably be about 75% wrong because the world's changed everything's changed mm-hmm the fact that you went to a college, the fact you went through a course, the fact you had an MBA from pick, pick the year, the fact that you were a leader in this kind of company at this level, whatever, it doesn't necessarily convey directly, probably doesn't convey directly to whatever you're doing right now. So instead of trying to draw from that constantly and doubling down on the experience, which just shows that you're becoming more and more of a dinosaur as far as your mentality, wake up every morning, think a little bit about the future. And say, what am I going to learn today? Who am I going to learn it from? Who new am I going to reach out to? What new podcast, what new book, what new person am I going to have lunch with? Go have lunch with a, with a theologian. Go have lunch with a chemist. Go have lunch with somebody. Get out of your, get out of your own mind. Get out of your own, your kind of your, the rut, the, the deep line that you've etched in, in the universe. Mm-hmm. And get smarter in a very curious way. And what it does is if you do it as a habit, just like brushing your teeth or working out or whatever, you start to see the world that way. You start to see the information coming at you that way. Ideas, problems, everything. You go, okay, there isn't a way to do this. There isn't my way to do this, but there will be a way to do this. But we're going to figure it out together. We're going to use all this other information to come up with the best way forward. If you could just do that if, as a person, as a professional, as a leader, I mean, you're basically an evolving learning creature. That's mm-hmm. what you should be doing all the time. And Probably 50% of your of your problems would go away because you'd be your eyes wide open. Yeah, right. Right. Yeah. I think that's great advice. And if somebody wanted to reach out to you to use you as a consultant or uh, a mentor or they want to read your books, what's the best way for them to reach out and, and buy the books or have a consultation with you? My author consulting speaker site is martystrongbenimble.com. I've got everything there. So all the novels, the business books, articles, et cetera, martystrongbeanimple.com. Awesome. Marty, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, guys. And remember, whatever happens in Vegas, in this case, did leave Vegas. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that is a problem, Greg. Like. (laughs) Well, it is a problem because some of the stuff that happens in Vegas, I don't remember. So. <laughs> I think that's why it stays in Vegas. Yeah. <laughs> hey, thank you for listening, subscribing, and reviewing DIY for Business. The subjects that we cover on this podcast are selected with the goal of helping your business grow. And all of the information provided is opinion-based, and you might want to consult a professional to discuss your exact business situation. Greg and I want your company to succeed, and we're happy to take your questions. We'd also love to hear your suggestions for future episodes. I I don't know how many uh, suggestions we've turned into episodes, but uh, it's happened and it's going to happen again and it could be yours. So reach out to us at DIYforbusinesspodcast.com. The link is in the podcast description, but that's pretty easy to remember as well. <laughs> hey, we thank you again for listening. We thank you for reviewing and we thank you for subscribing to DIY for Business where you are not alone.